I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to The Literary Life. My guests today are Scott Miller and Chris McKinney. Uh, Scott and Chris are here today to talk about uh, the publication of a brand new book called Management Mess to Leadership Success. It's a book that Scott wrote and Chris published. So we're going to talk about Scott's book. We're going to talk about Chris's publishing concern. And we're going to do all of that by first talking about the book. And I want Scott to, if he can, tell us exactly how this book came to be. Well, Mitchell, thank you for hosting us today. Honored to be here at Books and Books in Coral Gables. You know, I have spent the better part of my 30-year professional career mostly in leadership roles, leading people. And I work for one of the world's most renowned leadership development firms, Franklin Covey. Many people know that was co-founded by Stephen Covey, who wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, sold 30 million copies. And I think it actually... Uh, help put my kids through preschool, to be honest. <laughs> well, the sale it, of it that certainly book. did mine too, because I've been working for the firm for almost 25 years. So I've had the fortunate privilege of being in the leadership development industry for almost all my life. And really what I came to learn is that leadership is a lot more difficult than most of the authors tell you. I think too many of the leadership books written are kind of academic they focus on mission and vision and values, which is very important, and strategy and systems and process, also very important. But at the end of the day, the role of a leader is to model and engage and inspire people. And that's not for everyone. So as I became a little more competent of a leader after lots of messes in my career, I wanted to evangelize the fact that it's okay if people don't choose to be a leader of people. It's not for everyone. It's hard, it's relenting. It's often not rewarding immediately. So I wanted to author a real, relatable, raw book that brought to life a lot of my own messes in the hopes to inspire people to avoid some of theirs or minimize them and move towards greater success. 
Well, what I was very impressed with is the fact that you are so open about the messes that you encountered in your own life, and you use them as examples throughout the book, making the book more than just your typical business book, because what it really is as well is kind of a business autobiographical uh, book too, where it's telling the story of you. I mean, uh, in a way that's compelling, in a way that's informative, and in a way that we can learn from as well. So what I want to do is have you, I know you can't go through all 30 of them, but talk about a couple of the messes that, uh, that you encountered. And the, the first one that you encountered is, is probably the one that got you down, starting yeah. down this road. Well, I have no shortage of messes, so that, that'll be easy. You know, the book is really built around a framework of 30 challenges that every leader faces. Of course, there's more than 30, but our colleagues at Franklin Covey and I culled together a list of about 150. We narrowed it down because that would be a suicide read if you had 150 messes. And I brought it down to about 30. And I think that of these 30 messes that range from protecting your team from being urgency addicted, to having life balance, taking time for relationships, declaring your intent. Of all of them, I think the one that I think is the most challenging for me is challenge three, which is listen first. And that's no surprise. As leaders, all of us are trained primarily to be great communicators. Speak well, be pervasive, evangelize your message, clarify your message, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, right? We're taught how to speak from stage, how to master PowerPoint or keynote. And I think that too few of us, if you're at all like me, haven't had much formal training on listening because listening is a communication skill. Listening is a leadership competency. And I think because leaders are so often encouraged and reinforced to have all the answers, solve all the problems, you know, have the buck stop with them, we don't take the time to say maybe we should be listening more effectively. So I spent a whole chapter talking about how important listening is to being a persuasive leader. It's counterintuitive, humble, confident, secure leaders don't always have to be talking. They can step back, not be the smartest person in the room, and listen to the wisdom that's around them that they might actually be suffocating. In fact, you mentioned the book is fairly vulnerable. It's really raw. My wife's convinced I'll never work again because <laughs> I share a lot of my professional sins, so to speak. Nothing illegal or moral. But I, 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 I feel like in the future, one of the key competencies that every leader is going to have to demonstrate is vulnerability. I think vulnerability is as important as reading a P&L, as being able to put together partnerships, as it is understanding the science and math of your business, that people want to be led by people who admit they have messes too. Everybody's a human. Some of us are just masquerading as leaders, trying our best to model and be trustworthy and inspire people. But this notion of being vulnerable, which I've not perfected, right? I mean, Brene Brown has the rap on vulnerability, but she's also inspired me to use it as a tool and as a bit of a bully pulpit so that people can feel, I think, more comfortable with their own messes and not rest on them, but move from mess to success. 
Talk, talk about the time when you were uh, made a leader and you were probably made a leader a little prematurely and you discovered something about yourself. Right. Well, amongst the many horrifying stories I confess in the book, I'm a Catholic, so I'm used to confessing, right? It was <laughs> quite easy for me. And I was joined, I joined the Covey Leadership Center back in 1996 as a salesperson, right? Kind of carrying a bag, frontline salesperson, selling our leadership solutions to universities and school districts. And I did a pretty good job first few months coming in. And I had brought a little bit of a quality perspective from my time at Disney, where I spent four years. And so um, unwisely, the vice president took a liking to me and promoted me. A couple of weeks into the job, thought I had some leadership talent. To this day, he still thinks I have leadership talent. 23 years later, his name is Chuck Farnsworth. In everybody's life, you have a transition person that believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And I'm the fortunate recipient of lots of those in my life. So Chuck promotes me to be the manager of what is the equivalent of a client service team. Five or six at the time, they were young ladies that were all more seasoned than I was. And I brought them together and decided to fix them. Now, he didn't hire me to fix them. He hired me to lead them. But I thought a leader's job was to fix other people. So I began to call out all of their messes and began to really micromanage them to perform the way I would do their job. Mind you, I had no idea how to do their job. I hadn't done their job, which is a challenge all of us leaders face. Oftentimes, we're leading people who are smarter than we are in their own areas, and we need to be comfortable with that. I was not. I was just horrifically insecure as a leader. So I began to micromanage the heck out of them, ask them to have all of their doctor's appointments happen after hours. Do not leave to pick up your kid who's sick at school. And by all means, when you're on your honeymoon, Becky, please make sure you check your voicemail. And to her timid and shy credit, she said no. At the time, I was horrified that she wouldn't respect my leadership position. But I look back now and say, Becky, great for you. So a couple of weeks into this um, reign of terror, as I'll call it, I got a call one morning at breakfast, and it was my boss. And Chuck began to say, you know, I've been thinking. And about three minutes later, it ended with me being unpromoted for my first leadership job because I was a jerk. I didn't realize that leadership is about inspiring people and releasing them and igniting their passions and talents and creating a safe environment to admit your fears and channel your passions. I thought it was around setting guidelines and standards and discipline and structure. And here's how we will do it because it's my way or there is no way. And perhaps I was just really immature and naive, but it took me about 20 years to come to the realization that no one wants to work with that kind of person. The fact of the matter is you spend more time with your business associates than you do awake with your family. And so if you want to create an environment where people choose to stay and choose to give you their all, you've got to move from mess to success. Beautifully stated. And what was that process over the 20 years that got you to understand that? Oh my goodness. I think a lot of leaders that had the courage to discuss with me my blind spots. It was Charles and Colleen and David and Bill and Bob that sat me down and said things like, I remember Bob, I remember Bill Bennett sat me down in a red leather chair with um, rust rivets. And he said to me, Scott, you're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match. Now that isn't a sobering conversation from your boss. And he went on to talk about how he was tired of me gossiping and sharing, you know, sensitive things, nothing illegal again or nothing SEC worthy. But 
I've been on a journey and I think it's through these great leaders that had the courage to move outside their comfort zone. Because I'm not timid. I'm a fairly courageous person too. So I'm not easy to give feedback to. But it was these just selfless leaders that really saw in me more than I saw in myself that kept sometimes saving me from myself. I've been so blessed to be in the company Franklin Covey for 23 years where I was able to create a career, nine different careers within one company. And I really give credit to all the leaders that were patient with me, that listened, pre-forgave me, forgave me, and really inspired me to, I think now, have written this book to help others realize we all have messes and no one is a complete mess and no one is a complete success in their leadership roles. And I also think that leadership, Mitchell, is a lot harder than we're led to believe. I think too often, at least in my 30 years, I've seen a lot of great individual producers, the top salesperson, the lead product manager, the lead engineer, lured into leadership as opposed to led because they think it's the only way to either get promoted or earn more money or it's just the natural movement. And too few people move into leadership fully aware of what it means. And leading people is, is, is really hard. It's not for everyone. And I think there's no shame in saying, you know what? It's not for me. So, so I absolutely agree. Let's step back a minute and let's try to go uh, and explore that bridge from, you talked about working for Disney. Yes. That bridge from Disney to Covey, which are different companies, but there must have been some thread that was very similar yeah. that, uh, that made... Covey very appealing for you. What was it about the Covey Corporation? And maybe you can talk a little bit about them, which made you want to make that change. Uh, this is this my therapy session? Because I'm liking this, actually. <laughs> Free therapy with Mitchell Kaplan. Come down to books and books. Uh, I, Disney was a phenomenal organization. Worked there for four years from my early 20s to mid-20s. They fired me after a great four-year one run because I was a jerk. I just was not collaborative. I was a bull in a china shop. I didn't respect the culture. You know, culture will eat you up and spit you out. And if you don't assimilate well into a culture, then you need to find one where you can. And I think I wasn't mature enough to really appreciate all that Disney had to offer. And I was just, again, I wasn't doing anything illegal or immoral or unethical. I just was, uh, I was a train wreck interpersonally. And so it happened that the Disney company was building the town of celebration that I was on the ground floor of. And because Disney was collaborating on bu building a best of class school, they brought in some colleagues from the then Covey Leadership Center to help to shape the curriculum. And at the time, the vice president of education at the Covey Leadership Center from Utah came to Orlando and was helping them kind of shape the model for the school. And he took a liking to me. And when Disney fired me, it didn't take Covey a minute to reach out to me because I think they saw that young kid, there's something in him. And if we can help like shine it up and polish it up, there's a future. And so I goes back full circle to these leaders who believed in me more than I even believed in myself. Well, their organization is all about leadership. So That's they exactly obviously right. thought, thought that you were... Um, Moldable. Uh, you were moldable yeah. at that point. Yeah, more than I think I probably deserved. I mean, right. I am the product of people who had a vision for me. And I think it's really shaped my own leadership style because I had people 
in my life now where I hope my legacy is doing the same, you know, seeing some of their potential and helping give them a launching pad as well. So I'm both grateful to everybody at Disney and everybody at the Franklin Covey Company. I rose from being a frontline salesperson to being the chief marketing officer, the first and only ever chief marketing officer, and a member of the seven-member executive team reporting to the CEO. So I'm quite grateful and humble. How, how many people are in the Covey organization? Yeah, so worldwide, there's about 2,000. There's about 800 here in the United States. We are a global company. We're based in Salt Lake City. We have offices in every country where the State Department deems it's legal. <laughs> so we're in everywhere but like three countries, right? We're not right. in Syria or Iran, but almost everywhere else. And so there's about 2,000 associates worldwide, and we serve nearly every one of the Fortune 5,000 companies, helping them to build a winning culture. And, and that's the main uh, objective of that's what right. the Covey organization yeah, does. Yeah, our, our main competency is helping organizations <clears throat> build cultures that recognize that leaders are the linchpin to their success and changing the paradigms, the behaviors, and the results of those leaders. So, and I know from talking to you earlier that uh, books have meant a lot to you, not just the Covey books, but you're a reader. Yes. And so talk about some of the books that you enjoy and the books that you read. You know, I was raised like most people in the 70s and 80s where the library was, you know, as sacred as the church. And so my mother and I, my brother, went to the library every week. It was a destination. Your library card was in your wallet as like a um, right. something you'd earned. And you had to check them out at the right time and return at the right time. So for us, we were raised that books were central to our, our literacy, not just to read, but as a human being. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And my mother read the newspaper every morning. The Orlando Sentinel was on the table every morning for 20 years. My mother was not a professional. She was a homemaker. But she enculturated in me the value of reading and being literate and understanding the news. So I became an avid reader early in life, almost all nonfiction. Hmm. I haven't read four fiction books in my life. Dan Brown, like literally, right? <laughs> as easy as they come. But I'm not a fiction reader. I'm a, I'm a voracious reader of Middle East politics. I love Israeli Arab history. I like political biographies. I like to read business books. I host two podcasts on my own. So I'm interviewing CEOs and authors every week. So what I, are the two podcasts? So I host a radio program on iHeartRadio. It's called Great Life, Great Career. And I interview broad people like Seth Godin to Dan Pink to Stephanie McMahon from the WWE. Right. And I also host what is the world's largest leadership newsletter that is called On Leadership. It's actually a video interview every week with people like Susan Cain, who wrote Quiet. Of course. And General Stanley McChrystal. I've interviewed Doris Kearns Goodwin and a whole slew of literary titans that have just you know, instilled in me an appreciation for the printed word and the digital word. So I am a unabashed evangelist of the power of books to, to nurture creativity, inspire people. So the launch of this must be extremely exciting for you. The launch of the uh, management mess to leadership success. I don't, I don't think words describe how grateful I am to Chris McKinney, my publisher, and to you, my sort of chief evangelist, Mitchell. This is a book that's been in me for a long time. I didn't know I had. You know, if I could share briefly, I interviewed Stephen M. R. Covey, who was Dr. Covey's oldest son. He wrote a book called The Speed of Trust, which has now sold 2 million copies. It is the go-to book for CEOs to build a high trust culture. Dr. Covey's eldest son. 
And I interviewed him a year ago and said, Stephen, was it tough to be under the, the shadow of your father, Stephen R. Covey, right? I mean, seven habits. How do you, how do you write a book better than your dad's? And I said, did you always feel like you needed to write a book? And he said, you know, I didn't, Scott. I was the CEO of the company. And I said, I didn't have anything to say. And then one day I did. He said, and I didn't write a book until I was ready to say something. And then he wrote The Speed of Trust, which is this now seminal themed book. And I think a similar thing happened to me. I didn't think I had anything to say. And then some colleagues gathered around me and I was meeting with Chris McKinney, who is one of Franklin Covey's go-to publishers. Franklin Covey has a storied past and a long future ahead of us with Mango Publishing. And I sat down with Chris and ironically his dad, Scott, at lunch. I was just telling some of my own leadership challenges. And it was Chris and his dad, Scott, that over lunch and said, you've got to write a book. You know, I didn't know the origin story. Yes. That's fantastic. And it was really Chris's dad that over lunch, I left and said, okay, I will. I had started <laughs> it, but I was kind of just kind of goofing around with it. And here we are nine months later, sitting at Books and Books with Mitchell Kaplan on your podcast where I just signed 200 books here at Books and Books, and I'm on to nine other cities, and I'm grateful and humble. This has been a great launch. But now that you mentioned Chris, so Chris is um, Chris is the, the, the publisher of a press here that's based in Coral Gables called Mango, uh, Mango Publishers. And um, Publishers Weekly, um, in their annual roundup of publishing, um, identified Mango as the number one fastest growing medium to small size publisher. Uh, Chris, I've known now for a number of years, our Books and Books Press imprint is part of Mango Publishers. And there isn't a uh, nicest, more honest, more uh, collegial person that I know in the publishing industry than Chris. And it's just a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk to you a little bit about, about Mango and about your relationship with Scott and all of these things. And so, Chris, let's, let's kick it off. I know that you've had a long background in publishing yourself. Yes. Uh, thanks so much. I'm, geez, I'm kind of embarrassed here. I mean, all these accolades. Um, just being in my presence it's, is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought you were going to say. I'm no, embarrassed. I, I, actually, I'm, I'm thinking more about my management messes right now. But, um, but no, I originally hail from California. I kind of grew up in publishing out there and was with the amazing PGW for a number of years. Publishers Group West for Publishers those Group who West, don't. Um, now part no. of Ingram. And... You know, I've not just had a, a love affair with, with books and, and publishing for, for so long, but never really thought I would have a chance to kind of go my own way. And fortunately, my my wife was okay with me liquidating all of our retirement savings, <laughs> hoping our kids still go to college because we, we also took out their 529 plans and everything else and made a big bet that uh, the future of publishing maybe needed to go in a slightly different direction than what seemed to be coming out of the establishment. And it's, it's these sorts of projects um, like we've done with, uh, with Scott Miller that I think really exemplify a, a change in publishing, uh, a, a change in publishing where um, we really work with our authors so closely um, from inception of idea all the way through the process. And as I think you said, uh, several months ago, Mitchell, 
uh, we don't give up. We we keep we keep at it because a book is a sacred sacred object. It's a sacred uh, cultural. Uh, it has so much cultural impact that just publishing a book as a publisher and saying, "Great, did our job. Now, now time to move on." Um, you know, I I think there's there's a lot more to it than just that. Oh, there is indeed. And what's the opportunity that you have working with someone as dynamic uh, and plugged in as Scott with his book? Well, I think uh, first I'd love to kind of address that um, the the origin story here because um, you know my dad I never expected to be working with my father who long ago retired um, and somehow we've uh, drawn him back into into the work world and you know he is he's a gentleman who is very smart very analytical worked for the CIA for a lot of years. And to, to see him now, many years after normal retirement age, um, working on books, coming up with different concepts. He even came up with a, a book that we, we published uh, with Hiram Smith, who right. was one of the, uh, uh, essentially the father of time management called Purposeful Retirement. And that was his concept. And so when he, in, with his keen analytical mind, um, started to look at what Scott was proposing. And when I thought about, you know, like Scott, I'm also a heavy duty reader of nonfiction and love histories, but also have read most of the big business books over time. I've always thought that there was a lot of room for something different, something that was very raw, confessional, focused on those vulnerabilities and that, that kind of innate humanness to, to all of our experiences that, that would really find find its sea legs and now, i think we're, we're getting there. you are and what's so interesting for me is that i'm particularly a reader mostly of fiction as well as some nonfiction. i tend to stay away from prescriptive books mm-hmm. and the thing that really appealed to me about scott's book is that it's not just that it, you have created it's kind of an interesting new genre as well which is this autobiographical um um this autobiographical take on how to improve yourself. And, you know, a lot of these tend to be bloated as well. And Scott's book is exactly the right amount of pages it should be. You guys have clearly worked on it really very, very diligently to give it the tone and sensibility that it must have. Well, and I think uh, editorially, MJ Fiev, who is Scott's editor um, from our company, um, really did a lot. Um, in working with Scott to to get it just right, um, it's in this genre or this this new approach. I hope that we're rather than telling, as so many books of the past would have done, you know how to, how to be prescriptive, how to how to do better or uh, feel better in your life. Um, that this is more showing. Oh, you know we had it. We had an event earlier today, uh, co-sponsored with the Chamber of Commerce, and there was a room full of people, and Scott was giving a talk about how one uses this book, The Management Mess, and talking about it. And I can tell you that people were walking out of there um, 
at the moment reevaluating their own uh, place in their own businesses. I know that I was. I, I this is Scott again. I think Chris and I agreed a year ago that there's no shortage of leadership books in print right, by any stretch. And what they all have in common is they tend to be a little bit academic and kind of aspirational, which is important in a leadership book. But I don't know that they're talking to the every woman and every man that's promoted into leadership because they didn't want to report to their peer, right? It was, you know, they drew a straw and got invited in and lured, were lured in. And now they're like, oh crap, this is a very different experience than what I was doing yesterday. And they're not prepared. And sometimes they get overwhelmed and flamed out. So we wanted a book that was respectful, funny, relevant, raw. It's full of unabashed stories about all my messes. But I don't think I'm that different from you, Kaplan. No, from Mitchell. No. And I don't think I'm different from you, Chris, right? We do our best and we have challenges and we say and do the wrong things sometimes. You know, you know, in fact, the best fiction is cathartic. So the best fiction, you're living someone else's <laughs> life and learning from what he or she learned uh, through this novel. And this is not a novel, obviously, but I had the same kind of cathartic experience in the sense of recognition that I could recognize myself in unfortunately most of these messes that you that you present yeah. and I don't, I don't think you're alone <laughs> i i do think i mean in a more serious note i think you just said what almost every leader is going to think when they read this book is finally there's a book i can relate to that i'm not the only one i i think it's a book that gives people people permission not permission to misbehave not permission to not aspire to a greater level of leadership but to kind of meet you where you are and recognize that these 30 challenges are something you don't just face as a leader. You face as a spouse, a partner, a friend, a parent, a committee member, a participant in your you know, faith community. And these challenges are present in all aspects of our life. So I think it's as much a leadership book as it is a book about how to be a good human and how to move these messes in your life to greater successes. Well, you, you know, I'm going I'm to probably get into territory that I'm sorry I'm getting into, but one of the thoughts that I now have, particularly given the season that we're in, in just a couple of weeks, there'll be debates right. uh, here in Miami right. where there's been a huge amount of talk about the responsible role of CEOs. As you know, we're in a period now where the disparity of wealth you know, is incredible, the highest it's ever been. Uh, I think it's something, what is it? You probably know the statistic, but from the guy who works in the, 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 the man or woman who works in the business versus what the CEO makes, yeah. it's what, 75 times, 100, no, it's, more like it's even 100, five or 600 times, or 600 times that. More like 10 to so one. when you talk about a leader and you talk about a company, how much of that is their responsibility to also look at the political, not, I don't mean political, I mean political with a small p, yeah. the issues that surround our culture in order to show respect for the people that they work with? Well, I, I think it's Franklin Covey's point of view, which I am an unabashed evangelist and supporter of, is that leaders, as I mentioned, are the linchpin of every culture. And that people don't quit their jobs, as the Gallup organization reports, right? People quit their leaders. They quit their boss. And they quit their company's culture. So leaders are the culture carriers of any organization, whether it be respecting women, whether it be aware of their own unconscious biases, whether it be recognizing that 
they don't have to have all the answers and be the genius in the room. But to quote my dear friend, Liz Wiseman, who wrote Multipliers, be the genius maker of others in the room. So there's absolutely an imperative responsibility on leaders at all level, whether you're in the C-suite or you're managing the front line, to make sure you're creating a culture where everybody finds their voice, they thrive, they're able to align their passions and their missions with their, with their job. And if not there, then maybe somewhere else. So I think, it's, I think the pressure on leaders is only increasing. And also their day job, right, of just delivering results and making high value decisions and what they say yes to, what they say no to. One of, my, one of my least favorite types of leaders is the leader who always agrees with the person they met with last, <laughs> the most charismatic person. You got to stand for something or you'll fall for everything. But you can do that in a way that's respectful. You can give high courage feedback to others and still leave them whole. I think one of my messes, Mitchell, was I'm a pretty courageous person. It's not surprising to you. And I think like a lot of people, our strengths can become weaknesses when we take them too far. And that for leaders to be self-aware and to have feedback, to really understand what their value is, how are they helping to lift others, that I would encourage most leaders, go around the company and ask your colleagues, what's it like to work for you? Go ask your spouse, what's it like to be married to me? Go ask a friend, what's it like to be my friend? And really make it safe and to tell you the truth, you will learn so much about yourself and about your blind spots and your strengths and your messes and your successes. And as leaders, when we have a better sense of what our fears are, what our strengths are, we can bring so much to the organization. We can eliminate some of the disparity. We can build a greater culture. Our organizations can have a greater role in our communities, not be so insulated or insular. Leadership is tough. It's a lot of responsibility. And like I mentioned before, I think too often people are lured into it, thinking it's the next step. And like doctors who have to train for 15 years or pilots who train for 30,000 hours, leaders don't have to. They get promoted over one day and they can do a lot of damage to people. As much damage as arguably a pilot or a doctor because you can destroy lives with people who are still alive. And so I would say that leaders... Be careful about the influence and the responsibility you have. And I've mentioned it's no shame in not becoming a leader. The world needs billions of people who aren't leading others. But I'm not quite sure I should have always been a leader of people. I've mentioned in the book, a lot of us are kind of accidental leaders. And the responsibility it takes to lead others is very different from an individual producer. It's a massive paradigm shift. Well, well I, I think what you're saying resonates with me completely because to create a culture that um, is humane, a culture that um, takes in other people's feelings into consideration while at the same time being effective is something that I know that we aspire to. And I think it's what probably brought the two of you together. I am sure that you saw that in Chris when uh, you, Scott, when you saw that in Chris, when you first met. Uh, what I saw you know. in Chris was the opposite of me. I saw calm, deliberate, thoughtful, and contemplative. None of those things am I. <laughs> and I work as, with a lot of publishers, right? As the executive vice president of Franklin Covey, I work with Annie Oswald, who leads our books division. And I spend a lot of my time with the big publishing houses. I won't mention their names. We have books with all of them. They're great organizations. And when I met Chris, I was kind of used to working with the big houses. And I, I thought, you know what? This team is different. 
This team cares. It's not a word you hear in business very often. They're in profit to make money. So are you. So am I. But this team cares. And beyond caring, like Chris said, they're relentless. I never had a publisher talk about the algorithm and really understanding how all the search engines work and how to make sure that your, your, your message and your voice is calibrated authentically with what readers want to learn. And Chris would tell me, yeah, people aren't interested in that, Scott. Well, they're interested, they're interested in this. So do you have a point of view around that? And I felt there was just an authenticity and uh, I'll say it for the third time, a level of care that came out of Mango that I'd not seen in my career at any other publishing house. Well, and it's very true. And and I see that. I see publishing from a, a similar perspective. I'm involved with all the publishers, big, small, whatever. And uh, there is something that Mango is bringing to the table, which is extremely unique. And And I think it is to build a bridge again, that culture. Um, and I just sort of want to end the podcast a little bit by quoting your friend and marvelous writer, Liz Wiseman, who's talking about your book. And I'm sure you gave her the permission to be honest as well. And she says, with his signature wit and honesty, Scott Miller lays bare his own leadership follies and illustrates how easily we get trapped in self-centered management. This book is not only full of humorous moments on every page, it's also densely packed with practical tips, all drawn from world-class management wisdom that will help you get out of your own way. I'm going to say that again. It's going to help you get out of your own way and be the leader everyone wants to follow. Uh, I can't recommend this book enough. It's The Management Mess um, to Leadership Success by Scott Miller, published by uh, by Chris McInerney at uh, Mango Press. I thank you both for being here. Thank you, Mitchell. Thanks so much, Mitchell. Thanks for being on The Literary Life.